Well, good morning, Rooted Church. Uh, I'm going to take a minute here to get set up because the little tablet that I normally use is not working, so I've got this giant computer thing, and I'm, we're going to see how it's so bright, too. But we're going to use it this morning. Um, and I'm going to attempt to, I normally put the scripture inside of here, but I'm going to try to read it uh, as I go. And I noticed this morning that as I get nervous, my hands kind of shake, and that the words are really small. So we're just going to work through that, too. But it's good to see you guys this morning. It's good to be here. Uh, as was just read for us, we're going to be in Hebrews 11. Um, I think as we get started, there's probably two basic questions we have to ask uh, this morning. And as I, I stepped into Hebrews 11, we got the, the preaching schedule list. Um, I was a few months ago, probably, that Rodney sent that out to kind of include everybody in that. Uh, but a couple weeks ago when I sat down and really started digging into Hebrews 11, uh, based off what we had studied already in Hebrews and, and looking through that, I kind of came to two basic questions we have to ask, and the first one is, what is the context for Hebrews 11? Um, it almost seems like it's, it's kind of stuck here um, randomly in the middle. There, the, so far, the book of Hebrews has been a book about how Jesus is greater than all of the Old Covenant. He's greater than all of Judaism. And we started with him being better than the angels, he's better than the patriarchs, he's better than the Levitical priesthood, and how Jesus is the completion and fulfillment of a lot of those things. Um, and so then Hebrews 11 starts, and it talks about faith. Well, in the end of, of chapter 10, we get a call to endurance. That is where, you know, Rodney preached from last week, and that's where we're picking up today, is this call to endure in faith. And if we look at chapter 12, it actually picks up again with that same call of endurance, a call to run the race set before them. And so that's where chapter 11 is kind of sandwiched in between these two calls of endurance. So contextually, that's where um, I want to start. And then the second question that I think um, is very important, and it's where we're going to uh, start in verse 1, is what is faith? I want to take a minute to unpack that word faith because uh, I think a lot of times we have a lot of baggage that we tie to faith. We hear the word faith um, in our modern context and we have all of these things that we attach to it and we assume that what it is. Um, so too often in our society, uh, Christians are ridiculed for their faith. It's something that they're supposed to be embarrassed by. It's something that is kind of thrown back in their face like, well, you have faith, uh, but you don't have reason or critical thinking. Um, it's believed that we must choose in a way if we're going to be people holding to faith over in people of science or people of reason. So many people are under this impression that faith means believing what you know isn't true or believing something that's factually incorrect that's against the best evidence. Um, it's buying into a story, uh, and to buy into that story, you have to suspend your thinking or believe something without thinking too hard about it. We just kind of hold it, uh, and that's, I think that's kind of the general definition of faith that we see in our society today. It's generally just this idea of uh, you have to suspend your reasoning. So often faith is, getting, is pitted against reason, um, it's seen as something counter, again, to sound thinking or common sense even. Uh, but true biblical faith isn't any of those things. It's not a dichotomy of reason or faith or belief against the evidence. It can be difficult to try and correct that misunderstanding in our society. And when you do, you get some pretty interesting responses generally. And, and again, it's not easy to do. Um, in my own life, I know at times I've had conversations about what faith is. And ironically, many people will come to chapter 11 to show that Christians believe things that just can't be true. They believe things against the best thinking. And so I'm hopeful this morning, as we study this passage, we're going to see what faith is. We're going to put it in its proper place, that it's not a belief in spite of reason or good thinking. Um, and hopefully, and sadly, there's even uh, some Christians that have come to believe that as well, that faith is this blind leap into the darkness, that there's no foundation or core for why we hold to our faith. Um, so it's my, again, it's my intention this morning to hopefully we can come to a conclusion on that and see if that's not what true biblical faith is. That's not where we stand as Christians, that we're not, we don't just have a blind leap into the darkness. There's good historical 
content of our faith. And then it means uh, it's not a counter to reason, it's actually with reason. So we don't have time this morning to dig into um, the philosophical or apologetical side of that question, but I do want to say a few things about that, um, kind of as a primer to that question that you may, may find interesting. So I hold very strongly to the idea that every other worldview, a worldview is just a, a set of beliefs, a set of lenses that we all view the world around us. I hold very strongly that any non-Christian worldview, um, it leads to absurdity. It leads to reason not even being something to be grasped. Morality fades away and is gone. Um, ever the worldview, whether that's atheism or naturalism, or even Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, um, it's bankrupt. It can't account for reason, can't account for science, can't account for a plurality of other things that we take for granted every day. And so we shouldn't concede the ground that Christian faith is unreasonable, or that's an unreasonable position that requires a suspension of good thinking to hold on to. Ultimately, every person is left with one question and one ultimate decision they have to make, and that's either Christ or chaos in their world. There is no other options. Outside of the Christian foundation of those things, nothing makes sense. So if you ever found yourself embarrassed by your faith, which I know I have, or buying into the idea that your faith is an unreasonable belief that you hold, they can't hold up to tough questions, I'm hopeful that we can shed some of those this morning and, and start building on a foundation from the book of Hebrews to help us see that the Christian worldview is the only worldview that gives a foundation for morality, for reason. Um, they can consistently answer the toughest questions of life, questions of meaning, um, things along those lines, that without the starting point of God's revelation to us, to his creatures, that nothing else can make sense. So hopefully that was just kind of a little primer. If you have like to discuss that, that's something I'm very interested in. I'd love to talk to you after service or later in the week, because um, that's kind of where my brain naturally goes. Um, it's a fun conversation to have. But just kind of hold that in the back of your mind, that faith isn't this blind leap in the darkness, but it's got a core to it, it's got a foundation. And that ultimately, I think that without Christian belief and Christian faith, that we can't make sense of the world around us. So starting with Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, I'm actually going to read from the New King James Version for the first two verses. Um, not that I think the ESV uh, is incorrect or wrong. I just prefer the way that the New King James uh, translates the first two verses. And so that is, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Provided the elders obtained a good testimony. So again, I chose to go with the New King James uh, for this verse uh, because I prefer its use of substance and evidence over assurance and conviction. Again, I'm not saying the ESV or the other translations are wrong in that. By no means, they know, those translators know way more about the languages than I ever could. But I think the King James is a more accurate in this case. So what does it mean that faith is a substance and evidence? So faith is definitely mental assurance, um, but the examples will be given in this chapter I think point us to something more than just a mental assurance or just an internal belief. Faith is what makes it possible for us to experience the not yet promises of God. So we talk often um, of the already and not yet aspect of Christianity. We await an abundant future inheritance when Christ returns, but we experience a piece of that future inheritance already today through faith. So seeing faith as substance and evidence is similar. It's a grasping hold of, it's a touching the promises of God that will one day be fulfilled. We experience an already to the not yet promises of God by apprehending its goodness and preciousness. And I struggled with how to put this into words. One great thing about my job is I can listen to podcasts or sermons uh, throughout the day as long as I'm not working on anything too technical or I have to turn it off because my brain can't do two things at once. But I get a lot of time to listen to other pastors and other theologians preaching through these things. And so as I was listening to them preach through Hebrews 11.1, 1, 
um, you know, I struggled with what does that even look like. And so luckily I came across, there's uh, some men that are much smarter than me, much more talented than me. Um, and so John Piper explained it this way. He says, in other words, faith grasps, lays hold of God's preciousness so firmly that in the faith itself, there is a substance of the goodness and sweetness promised. Faith doesn't create what we hope for. That would be a mere mind game. Faith is a spiritual apprehending or perceiving or tasting or sensing of the beauty and sweetness and preciousness and goodness of what God promises, especially his own fellowship and the enjoyment of his own presence. Faith does not feel confident that this is a coming someday. Faith has a spiritually laid hold of and perceived and tasted that it is real. And this means that faith has the substance or the nature of what is hoped for in it. Faith's enjoyment of the promise is a kind of substantial down payment on the reality that is coming. And then Sam Storms writes that faith is the sturdy bridge that provides a union between our present experience and the blessings God has in store for us in the age to come. So our faith is a sacred touch point of the promised future of God. It's not only the belief that God exists, but it's our connection to the personal God himself. Look at Hebrews 11.3. It says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made of things that are invisible. This is an illustration of this type of faith. The evidence of things not seen is creation itself. No one was there when God spoke the world into being, but it's clear to the perceiving creation that it points to a creator. I've actually really enjoyed this week. I've seen on Facebook uh, tons of the James Webb telescope photos of outer space. I don't know if you've seen those or not. Um, but it's very ironic to me that as I'm studying creation and how it points to our creator, then all of a sudden I'm, my social media is flooded with these pictures of just the vastness of space. Um, and so it actually kind of amazes me that people can look at that and think, ah, it's all an accident. It just happened. It's just there. Uh, to me, it clearly, as Hebrews tells us and Genesis tells us in the Bible, it's so clear that it points to a creator and this all-powerful creator that we have. But many will take the road of secular scientists. They see those pictures. They think something is the case. Um, and the sad thing is sometimes Christians were tempted to go with them. We're tempted to reinterpret the Bible to fit what we think the secular scientists um, hold about uh, space in this example of creation. Um, or, sadly, and I've, I've heard this person myself, that people just kind of give up parts of the Bible. They give up the idea that the Bible is infallibly true. They just, well... Okay, well, we know now that's not true, so that part of the Bible I can just leave out. That's a dangerous, dangerous road to go down, and that's not the attitude that Scripture takes of itself. Um, so let's take uh, an example I was trying to think of of this to kind of highlight this idea of just reinterpreting the text or maybe ignoring aspects of it that I think most in the room would agree is a dangerous thing, um, is the resurrection. You know, science today would tell us that men don't come back from the dead. Once you're dead, you're just dead. That's the end of it. And so we, as Christians, we're kind of left in this place of, well, do we go with that? Do we say, okay, well, Jesus didn't really die in our place. Maybe it was allegory, or maybe he was close to death, but he didn't actually die. Or do we take what Scripture tells us as the foundation of our faith? Do we take that Jesus died and rose from the grave again, regardless of what secular society thinks about resurrection and how that could work? Um, so that's just, yeah, I think that's just an example of taking that, that I, I wanted to grab that. It's easier to do that with creation, I think. It's easier to do that with the beginning because it's, it's kind of far removed from us. It doesn't seem as essential to our faith as the resurrection does. Um, but I wanted to highlight that as just a way that sometimes people will reinterpret Scripture to try to fit with what they think is the best explanation when really we should be focused on 
our foundation of scripture and let it mold us and mold our thinking. So Romans 1, 19 through 20 um, talks about this nature of creation and how it points to a creator. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So again, I take you back. If you've seen those photos um, from space, they just glorify and magnify the awesomeness of the God that we serve. So our faith is a spiritual perceiving of God's powerful, creative presence in the things that were made. Verse 4 says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So by faith, Abel offered his sacrifice, and God's acceptance of that sacrifice was an acceptance of the man himself. He was commended as righteousness, as righteous by his faith, not by the sacrifice that he offered, but the manner in which he offered it. So as he was able, it's not what we can bring to the table. It's not the attitude that we come to the table with uh, this morning. It's not how well your life has been put together. It's not did you fight with your spouse and kids pulling up to the parking lot, then come inside smiling like everything was wonderful. It's not about what you bring coming in that door as you come here this morning, but it's rather have you come in need of grace and mercy, humbled by the love of our Savior. It's the attitude by which we come. It's not what we can bring. It's not what we offer. The smallest sacrifices that we have can be made great in the way that we offer them. So we read that his life still speaks to us today. We're still, all these years later, being encouraged by the active faith of Abel. As it reminded me when my uncle passed away earlier this year, I was encouraged at the funeral um, as his pastor talked about uh, the ways my uncle had served the church in the last uh, decade or so that he was going there, the way that he had expressed uh, strong faith in the things that were going on at the time. Um, and so that's a legacy uh, that he had left for me. It was encouraging for me to hear, my, hear somebody talk about my uncle with such faith. And I think that's a legacy that we can leave as well. So our life, the things that we do, the way that we express faith, can speak to future generations. Um, we may never be famous. Probably nobody's going to write a book about me, and then in 6,000 years somebody's going to be reading it and think, man, Brandon, what a faithful guy. But the people in this room, the people that you have connections with, your children, your family, your friends, those are people that can go on remember. Like, I'm, I remember my uncle's faithfulness. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's something we can be called to as well. It's not just for Abel or these heroes of the Bible. It's something we can exhibit as well. So in Hebrews 11, 5 and 6, we read, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So Enoch, again, was commended before God, and he was taken up. If you go back in Genesis and you read the account of Enoch's story, there's actually not a lot written about Enoch. Um, but you'll see in that chapter in, in Genesis, as the author lists who was born, who they fathered, uh, and each description ends with, and they died. There's this list of, of men as they go down, who they fathered, when they died. Um, all of them are, are the exact same way. It's kind of a repetitious uh, deal, except for Enoch's story. Uh, at the end of Enoch's story, it says he walked with God which means he pleased God, and then he was taken up, never seeing death. So Abel and Enoch point to a reality that's expounded on in verse 6. 
that without faith is impossible to please God. We learn that without faith is impossible to be commended by God. So external works may gain us commendation from men, uh, but it will never earn us commendation from God. That is by faith alone. Now, I don't want you to miss this very important inverse of that truth as well, that with faith it is impossible to be condemned by God. So without faith, it is impossible to please God, but with faith, it is impossible not for God to be pleased with you. That's the beauty of the gospel that we celebrate today, that by faith we are saved, and by faith Abel's sacrifice was accepted, and by faith Enoch walked with God and pleased him. Verse 7 says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So Noah was motivated to construct an ark by faith. He believed God about the coming judgment, and he built an ark in faith of that unseen reality coming judgment. He knew God, and he trusted his word about the coming future, and so he stepped out in that, and he built an ark. Uh, so we must be careful not to underestimate the Noah story. It's easy today to allegorize the flood narrative. Uh, we must be careful not to do that. The Bible is clear. There's a universal global flood. And in society today, Christians can be criticized for believing in this global flood idea. It's similar to creation or the idea of resurrection. Um, it's important to stand on the truth of God's word. Now, there are clever ways to interpret the flood narrative, to try and make it more palatable to, to modern society. Um, and I'm not saying that I have the best interpretation of the flood story or that all others are wrong necessarily, um, but I always wonder uh, what the motivation is in making those attempts. So when we come to the Bible with our preset beliefs and we try to reinterpret what's going on, what is driving that? Is it trying to understand the truth of God's word and what he's revealed to us, or is it trying to make it more palatable to our friends and family and maybe to our own minds so we don't feel ridiculed or embarrassed by what we believe? Um, and I think if you do that, it can also make other texts very difficult to understand uh, when it comes to those, those stories. So how did Noah condemn the world by his faith? He wasn't the judge in any official capacity. He wasn't appointed as judge of the world. Rather, it's the idea that by faithfully building the ark out of a reverent fear of God, he was contrasted with the unfaithfulness of the world around him. Um, it's similar to a light being turned on in a dark room. The light doesn't create the things in the room, but it reveals them. So Noah didn't create the unfaithfulness of the world, but he revealed them as the light of God. So Noah's faith revealed and was contrasted with the wickedness of the world. And again, as we talked about with Abel and his life uh, being a story for future generations, I think we have that same ability today. When we remain faithful in times of trouble or ridicule, we're holding a mirror up to the world, showing the unfaithfulness and wickedness of the world. So lastly, we see that Noah was an heir of the righteousness by faith. He was retroactively imputed the righteousness of Christ in the Old Testament by faith. So we today, we live in light of when Christ came. We look back to when Christ was here, his death and resurrection, and by faith we hold on to those truths. But the faithful of the Old Covenant, the faithful of Judaism, the faithful of the Old Testament, lived in light of the coming Messiah. They lived in light of his promised coming. So faith was and is the only way of salvation and pleasing God. Verses 8 through 10. Say, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. 
By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So a theme that I actually forgot to mention earlier, I skipped that part because I went off of script here. So a theme that I should have mentioned earlier that I'm going to now bring up, because it's really important, (laughs) was that uh, if you look at Hebrews, Hebrews 11, they're being tempted back to the things of, the, of Judaism, things of the Old Testament, things of the Old Covenant. And so what the author does here in Hebrews is he actually takes those patriarchs of the Old Testament. He takes those heroes of the Old Testament and shows these, the Hebrew Christians that the book is being written to that you can't return to those people. There's nothing to go back to because their faith was in the promises of God, and it's one cohesive story. It's not two different options, two different belief systems, and you just pick which one you feel better with. But there was nothing to actually to go back to. So these Jewish Christians were tempted to return to the old ways, and the author shows them the foolishness of this by showcasing the faith of those starting with Abel. But by including Abraham, he's really capitalizing on this concept. Abraham is the one through whom God founded the nation of Israel. So if you were going to return to anybody as a Jew, it would be Abraham. But by him, but by the author including Abraham in this explanation of faith, showing that he had faith in the things to come, any sliver of hope of leaving Jesus for Abraham is completely demolished by the author's commendation of Abraham's faith. If the fountainhead of Israel had faith in the coming promises of a Messiah returning, oh, sorry, if the fountainhead of Israel had faith in the coming promised Messiah, returning to Abraham isn't even something that one could do. If they were to give up Jesus, they were giving up Abraham also. So the commentary that... Uh, Rodney gave me, it's been very influential in this series and kind of broke down how we're going to go through it. Uh, They word it this way. It says, embracing Christ is in fact to walk in accord with Abraham. So there was no returning to go back to Abraham. By embracing Christ, by following Christ, you were walking side by side with Abraham in those promises of God. So by leaving his homeland and traveling as a foreigner, Abraham showed great faith. It was very dangerous this time to leave your kin, to leave your family, leave your support system to travel. Uh, more, much more so than what most of us experience today. Uh, travel was dangerous with thieves and raiders. Uh, food was hard to come by. It wasn't a Walmart or a Dollar General on every corner. Um, so it's hard for us, I think, to even imagine how dangerous and difficult of a task that would have been and the faith that it took to step out into that, be a foreigner um, forever for the rest of his life in unknown lands. And so it reminds me of a time, uh, as I was kind of thinking about that, I thought, is there ever been a time in my life where I, I really felt like a, like a foreigner, like I didn't belong somewhere. Um, I'm going to tell a story, but preface that story with, this is nothing like what Abraham went through. My two minutes of, oh no, what am I going to do, were nothing compared um, to Abraham and the things that he stepped out in faith with. When I was in college, uh, I have uh, a half-sister that lived in Haiti at the time. And so one Thanksgiving break, um, I decided I was going to go down to Haiti, visit my sister, and thought, oh, that'd be awesome. That'd be a cool week off of school. And so I planned to go down there. I was telling people about it at the school. Um, the school I went to had actually partnered with uh, a church in Haiti, and so they wanted me to take some VBS-type supplies down with me. And so I get to the airport, and I'm going to have this giant, the biggest roller bag you've ever seen in your life with me. And I've got that bag. Uh, a few days before I left, though, I'm talking to somebody else, and my, this is going to sound weird, but my sister's mom, who is not my mom, because she's my half-sister, we, have, we share a dad, we don't share a mom, but my sister's mom knew I was going to see her. So she was like, hey, can I send some groceries and some things that they just can't get down there with you? I said, oh, yeah, sure. So I showed up to her house, 
Again, I don't know where they found these bags. They're the biggest bags I've ever seen in my life. So I go to the airport with these two giant bags that I could probably fit in, and then my little backpack of my stuff, because I had no other room left. Um, I get to the airport, fly down to Haiti. Everything's wonderful. Get out of the airport. Uh, it's, it's very different than any airport I've been, well, actually anywhere else. Uh, when, you get, when you arrive, there's one little room. You kind of get your stuff, and they just kick you out in the parking lot. And it's like, okay, good luck. And so I get out in the parking lot. It's nighttime. We're the last flight in. Doors closed behind me. Here's 18-year-old Brandon with his two giant bags in his backpack looking at th- just a whole scene that he's not used to. Um, obviously, I don't speak uh, Creole, which is the language of Haiti, and so I don't really understand what's going on. There's people everywhere because I'm guessing there's not um, a kind of a hub of, of social interaction, so the airport kind of becomes that. So I'm standing there. There's supposed to be somebody meeting me there. My sister's like, oh, yeah, our friend will meet you there because the place where they lived is on the other side of the island, um, so I had to connect this person. We're going to take a little plane over to the other side of the island. So I get there. I'm looking around. I'm looking for the little classic you know, name on a sign. Nobody. Nothing. And there was, I don't know, it seems like two hours in my brain. I'm sure it was a couple minutes. But there was kind of a panic attack of like, okay, I can't go back into the airport because the doors are closed. Um, I don't even know where to go for help. I don't know what to do. I've got these two giant bags. I went through the process in my head. I was like, well, if somebody wants something, I'm just going to give them these two bags. Like, sorry, you don't get your groceries because I'm giving them away to save myself, which is pretty terrible, but I'd already thought through that plan. Um, so then thankfully this guy comes out of the crowd, a younger guy, uh, probably in his 20s, and he's like, hey, can I help you? And my immediate thought was, well, you speak English, so I fully trust you. You have all of my trust. I hope that this works out in my favor. And I was like, yeah, uh, I'm supposed to meet somebody here, kind of explain him the story. And I told him where I was trying to get to. Uh, the school that she worked at was called Sunlight Academy. She was an elementary school teacher. Her husband was the principal of the school. His family had actually founded it 30 years ago. And I tell him, I throw this lifeline out there, like, I need to go to Sunlight Academy in, in port au And he goes, oh, that's where I went to school. What are the odds of that, that I'm four hours from where I'm supposed to be? And this guy's like, yeah, I went to school there. And he names off people that work at the school and names my brother-in-law. So I'm like, okay, wherever you, you're taking me, that's where I'm going, because now I trust you completely. Uh, he actually was kind enough. He flagged me down a cab. So I told him, I was like, I need internet access. So I can get on my laptop and get a hold of somebody. So I can get a hold of my sister and, you know, do the whole thing. So he flags me down a cab. He actually rides with me to this uh, little hotel that has internet, helps me get checked in with the guy running the counter. I get to my room. I get my laptop out. I get on Facebook because there was a time where Facebook was only a computer thing and not on your phone. So I get on Facebook, get on Messenger. I message somebody, my dad's phone number. I'm like, hey, can you call my dad that you've never met and explain to him that I'm lost in this country and I need him to call my sister Lindsay who can then call me here. So about 15 minutes goes by. Lindsay calls me. She's like, hey, They thought you were coming tomorrow. Sorry about that. I'm like, oh, yeah, I wasn't worried at all, even though I was sweating bullets on the inside. Um, So next morning, they show up. They take me. We take a cool little, like, puddle jumper plane um, up to where they're at, and I have a great week down there. But that was probably the only time I can really think of in my life where I was completely lost. There was nothing I could do in my own willpower to even know where to find help. And thankfully, somebody came to help me. Um, So I think about that, but I think... Okay, what if I had to live in that for years to come with that not knowing, being a foreigner, living in a tent, and not having a foundation to stand on? Um, and that's about the closest I can come to even trying to fathom what it'd be like for Abraham to step out in faith, to leave everything that he'd known, and go and do that. So we read in verse 9, uh, it said, By faith Abraham held on to the promises of becoming a great nation, but he never saw that those promises fulfilled. 
He faithfully lived on God's timing, hopeful for the great future that was promised. Isaac and Jacob, also patriarchs of the nation, were heirs to the same promises. So to reiterate, there was nothing for the readers of Hebrews to return to. Even if they thought, okay, Abraham had faith, but there's still Jacob and Isaac. Now they're included in that as well. There was nothing for them to abandon Christ and go back to. So I want to read Romans 4, 17-25 as a little bit um, added detail about Abraham's faith. Starting with 17, it says, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, So shall your offspring be, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So we see that Abraham's faith was a thought through faith. He thought through the promises of God. He knew that God had promised him that he was going to be a great nation. He promised him children. So he reasoned that even though he was very old at the time, that Sarah was barren, that the God who could raise the dead, the God who had created everything, literally everything, that he cared for him as a foreigner, and that he was going to grant him children one day. So he had faith in those promises. But again, it wasn't a blind leap of, oh, I'm going to have children one day. The person of God who promised him children, he knew all the things he had done before. So he trusted him. So his faith wasn't just a, a without evidence, but it was built on the foundation of who God is. And then in 10, we read about this promised city. He looked forward to a promised city. Um, he had lived as a foreigner in tents, always on shaky foundations, not really having a firm foundation. But he looked forward to a city and a foundation that was going to be built and designed by God himself. So we see that faith is more than just mental assent to a proposition. It's actionable, which I'm not even sure is a real word, but I'm going to use it. So it's actionable. There's definitely the mental assent and internal belief, but it doesn't stop there. We also see that it's not wishful thinking or empty positive feelings, which is a lot of times what we get. Um, these men obeyed and responded in action to the trust that they had in the promises of God. It's a faith that is built on the solid foundation of God's revelation. So let's look at another verse that tells us more about this foundation of faith that we have in the word of God. 1 Peter 1, 16 through 21 says, For we did not follow cleverly designed myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, boom, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So our faith 
is built upon these true historical things. The foundation is not myth or feel-good stories, but something that actually took place in history, and it started with creation. So I want to make sure one thing is clear, and we've touched on it a little bit as we've gone on. Uh, we don't look towards these men with awe and amazement alone, um, as if it's a list of things that ordinary Christians we can't follow in. That's, that's the, the men of great faith of the Old Testament, and it's amazing, it's encouraging, but we really can't, we can't do that. That's not why it's there. That's not how we should look at these. It's a call to endure, just as the writer of Hebrews is, is sticking uh, chapter 11 in here between two calls of endurance, because he's telling them, you can do this as well. You can endure in faith like these Old Testament uh, men and women. So it's a call to endure the hardship for regular, ordinary Christians. The ridic- it's a call to endure the ridicule, to not turn back from that which we know, but to persevere in faith and run the race well. And so I tried to think through what that could look like, because um, I've probably made this joke from stage before, but we don't really feel called back to Judaism, I don't think. There might be one person in here, but the majority of us don't feel called back to the Old Testament. We don't feel pressure to return to Judaism, because that's not where we came from. So as I thought about this call to endurance and what it could kind of look like today, I'm going to try to think through what may be a common thing for us in modern America to be beckoned back to. Um, and again, it's not Judaism, I don't think. Uh, if that is for you, then just ignore this part and read Hebrews 11. But for the rest of us, uh, I think it's this secularism. It's this idea of um, my faith has to be palatable to the world around me. I can't be too uh, firm in my foundation. Um, and I think more precisely, it, it, a lot of times it comes out in ethics. It comes out in secular ethics. Um, so there's one thing uh, that I think we all have in common. It's this draw to get some clarity on moral issues. It's a draw to uh, shy away from or back down from truth. Uh, and, that, and, it, and it shows itself in a lot of different ways, I think, um, whether it's uh, like LGBT stuff or abortion or gun rights or just all the platitude of political issues. Um, you know, we, we want to take a firm stand on them, but we want to be loving as well. But I think we have to have our foundation here on Christ and on his word. And so I think a lot of times that's what we're beckoned back to, is to shy away from the truth, to shy away from, to try to play nice and try to just be easy with people. Uh, but there's a way to have truth and love both be expressed. And by just shying away from the truth, not standing firmly on it, uh, we're not standing on that truth aspect. And we're really not standing on the love aspect of that either by being too timid with, with the truth that God's revealed. Uh, so the world expects us, or rather it demands, that Christians give up biblical standards. Uh, we either support these things, or we just have to stay quiet and stay in our corner and stay out of it. Uh, so we may be tempted to, to go back to this relativistic ethics of secularism. Uh, it's easier, definitely. It's more socially acceptable. Uh, you're not going to get a lot of likes on your social media stuff if you stand on God's truth, most likely. Um, you're probably going to catch a lot of flack for it, and then I don't know uh, how most of your lives are going, but I've even noticed it more abundantly, like, at work. There's, I'm getting more and more emails about these things that are coming out, these trainings that are coming, and uh, yeah, it could be easier just to shy away from that, back down, stay in your corner, stay quiet, uh, but I don't think that's what we're called to to be faithful. So we're told by society that we just leave our convictions at home, that those convictions are only for Sunday morning, we don't bring them into the public square, we shouldn't force our beliefs on other people. That if we don't like something, we just don't have to do it. Uh, but we leave everyone else to do what they want. Now, the problem with this way of thinking is that this isn't what anyone actually does. 
very people telling us to keep our worldview, to keep our set of beliefs on how we view the world out of it, stop imposing those uh, on other people, are doing that very thing. They're bringing their beliefs with them. They're trying to impose them on everyone else. So everyone is bringing their faith to the discussion, and it's impossible not to. It's impossible to check our worldview at the door. It's impossible to check our Christianity when we come at life's problems and issues. Um, as Christ followers, we're expected to live with a tangible, actionable faith. This isn't something we only practice on Sunday mornings, again. So let's look at James chapter 2, starting at verse 18. It says, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that a faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. So you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, there's a lot that can be unpacked in James 2. That's a whole other sermon. Um, but ultimately, we have to remember that Scripture is cohesive. So if we come to those two things, we come to what Paul says in Romans and what James says in chapter 2, uh, those things work together. So he's talking about a faith that is active and not just a mental ascent, not just a, well, I believe in God, but it doesn't really change my life. It doesn't, I haven't been regenerated. It doesn't change what I do. So as I was working on this text, uh, I was reminded of something that I think uh, I, I want to tell a story to kind of illustrate this type of faith. Um, and I actually, I got permission from the Mayfields. Uh, but so if you remember, the Mayfields have been looking for a home for a long time. Uh, and it was kind of coming down to the wire for those that were a part of those conversations. That they were getting really close to being without a place to call home. And I remember one conversation I'd had with Austin uh, one evening. Uh, the pressure was kind of on as a father and as a husband to make sure he provided for his family. Uh, and time was kind of running short. He was feeling that pressure. Uh, we talked for a while. He mentioned knowing that God would take care of them regardless of what was coming. And though it was difficult to not worry, he was praying that he wouldn't carry that worry with him. And I responded with the normal Christian agreement because uh, I didn't really know what else to say. Uh, because what he said was true, but that was the extent of it. I didn't have any wise words. I was like, yeah, you're right. God's going to take care of you. Um, and he was kind of left in this in-between space of trust and worry and standing on his faith to work through that. Uh, so a few weeks later, uh, they found a, a great place. Um, there's been a lot of hurdles in that process. He recently told me, though, it started to feel like home. It started to feel like their place. Um, and so I tell you this not to lift up uh, Austin or the Mayfields on a pedestal uh, to hold them up with the Old Testament saints and it's something that we can't achieve. Um, but at the time of this sermon, it just this conversation came to my mind. So Austin had faith that God would provide. That was the conversation we had. He knew God would take care of him. He knew God would provide for him. But it wasn't a blind faith without reason. God had provided for them up to this point, and he promises to continue to provide for them in his word. But that wasn't the end of faith for Austin. He didn't mentally accept the truth that God would take care of them and then just sit on the couch and do nothing. And they continued to look at houses. They continued to make plans. They looked at business opportunities and options. They leaned on friends and family. They prayed together as a family. His faith had action to it. It was a living faith. Not in a, if God doesn't come through, well, I'm going to have all the tools to take care of it kind of way. 
but in a partnering with what God was doing in the life of their family at the time. So Austin didn't have the full picture laid out for him. He didn't know this is where you're going to move to. I'm going to provide you this house or if he was going to be provided a house. But he knew God was going to take care of him because he had up to this point. He stood on those promises of God, on the character of who God is, and then he took action with that promise. So over the last week, uh, kind of digging in, probably some from like Wednesday to yesterday, uh, one thing kept coming in my mind about conversations I had had, uh, and it kind of sp- spurred off of what I had talked to Austin about. Um, there was a, a theme that kept coming up just in my random conversations that seemed prevalent. So I share this last part, uh, not as somebody that has it all together or it's all figured out, um, but as a fellow brother asking for help and encouragement along the way. So if you're a husband or a father, this kind of faith, this kind of active living faith, starts with leading your family, guiding and protecting your wife and children from the insane ideologies around us. It doesn't have to be grand gestures like building an ark or living so faithfully that you just don't die, God whisks you away into heaven. Um, but with regular, ordinary things, things you make time for and value are the things that your family will as well. If you make time for Bible reading, discipleship, fellowship, it shows your family that those things are important. So men, it's our job to lead our families, and subsequently, we lead the church. I desire to be able to look at my wife and child and say, follow me as I follow Christ. But thankfully, we don't do this alone because I have failed at that more times than I can count. But we lean on the others in this room and on the grace of Jesus to encourage us in that type of faith. That's the type of enduring faith that I want to pass along, to, that I want my son, my wife to see. And that's my prayer for Rooted. As we transition um, a lot this summer, that we can be a church known for men that boldly lead by faith and courage, And I'm not purposely leaving women out of that prayer, by no means. Um, I'm just not as bold to try and tell women how to be mothers or how to do life well. Uh, But scripturally, I do feel feel comfortable saying that uh, women just encourage your husbands in their leadership, take great joy in raising the the next generation. And together, I think we can encourage one another, husbands and wives, friends and family, toward this enduring biblical faith that has a solid foundation on who Christ is and his death and resurrection on our behalf. We don't have to just believe things that obviously aren't true. So if you'll pray with me, we'll end, end this part of the service, and we'll, we'll pray to that end, please. got to pray that you will continue to work in the life of Rooted, um, that this little group of people that you put together to be an influence on the society around us, I just pray that you lead us to that bold biblical faith, that we have good reason for the things that we believe, that you are an active personable God who stepped into history with your son Jesus. He willingly gave up his life so that we can have um, salvation and be pleasing to you through that faith. So I just pray that you continue to push us, encourage us, and challenge us towards that God. We thank you for the ways that you love us every day, Jesus, and we're humbled by the fact that you would even partner with us in faith to fulfill your kingdom's goals on this earth. Amen.